Oh my gosh, I think I'm already going to cry. It's been so long since we've heard some real claps. Um, (laughs) Welcome everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California and our special program with Michelle Mijung Kim and the launch of her brand new book, The Wake Up. Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. We're so excited, we're so happy, and so thankful and grateful to our sponsor tonight for making it happen, Acquire. So thank you very much, Acquire, for making tonight possible. If you're joining us, yeah, right? It's so great. It's good to have real claps and real sponsors. If you're joining us for the very first time here at the club, the Commonwealth Club of California is a 118-year-old nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to the civic discussion of today's most important topics and issues. The views presented tonight are those of the speakers. Tonight's program is one of over 500 programs that the club produces annually. You can visit commonwealthclub.org for upcoming events, podcasts, and videos of past events, and also the opportunity to become a member of the club. Also, shameless plug, you can visit commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for more Michelle Miao Show programming. Um, If you're joining us live on YouTube, you can use the chat box feature to send us questions for Michelle. And if you're here in person, we have a standing mic there in the back that you can line up for with safety and social distancing uh, when we call for questions later in the program. So make sure to be thinking about some questions for Michelle. Without further ado, let's get our program started. We're going to do this right. We're extremely honored to be kicking off the program with educator, arts and culture, uh, advocate, activist, poet, all around badass, Michelle Mush Lee. Michelle? A story of now for... Michelle Mijung Kim on the occasion of her book release and her growing light. We are in a monumental moment, a portal to change, as Arundhati Roy calls it, a gateway between one world and the next. If marked on the map of the human spirit, we are in the space between what is glorious and what is tragic, what is light and what is difficult, what is left and what is right. Expanding our imagination is what is required. Grace Lee Boggs spoke these words and empowered countless people around the world to find the strength within and together to defy hate and to seek out love. Love in the presence of our enemies. Love in places we were made to believe nothing good could grow. Who will be the neighbor to the one who is hurt and wounded? But truly, who among us has not been hurt and wounded or hurt and wounded? In a year of racial reckoning, a global pandemic, escalating escalating climate crisis, and a crack in the old structures of power, what does it look like to forgive, to bridge, to a new world? where our ancestors remind us that our righteous rage, unbound, unashamed, can move a mountain. Where your neighbor prays to different gods, but keeps the porch light on for you. After all, are we not all artists of creative survival? I'm going to ask that again because I'm hoping that we're, we're in the room together. Are, are we not all artists of creative survival? Are we not all children of travelers and seekers? Aren't you also like me, island and mainland, new world and old country, trapped between the hyphen that says we are culturally here and not yes? I am an Asian woman. She is an Asian woman, and we were born loud. We are also black future and power. We are fist and flower. We are the summaries of nightmares rewriting scarcity myths. We are redemption 
for the love we've killed without even knowing it. We are freedom fighters sent from the past. My story be a soundtrack of the best cooked meal you have ever had. In the world we are becoming, the one we are making, even tonight. You, she, they get to be soft and silent by choice. In the world we are becoming, the one we are both breaking and remaking, you can lay down your guns. You can at once feast first while the rice is still hot, while the army stew is still rich and meat, while the makoli is cold and the clay pot steams. Let us speak something sweet into the ear of great grief. Let us speak ourselves into a good story. Yeah? Let us speak ourselves into a damn good story. Let us break the injustice of our forebears without forgetting the sacred rage that kept us alive. Let us break from the rules made to divide. Let us meet this monumental moment with the story of who we be when we as people dare to belong, when we risk to believe in a world where everything made broken could be made whole again. Meet me there where the bridge bends into a circle, where there is no first and no last, where we have forgiven each other for hoping that our past could have been any different. Where the peacemakers, the healers, the restorers, the storytellers, the lovers are at last at the center of all things beautiful to us. You might be asking me, or you might be asking Michelle later tonight, but how will we know when we've arrived? We'll know. By the sound of hammers. By the collapse of guns. When the hidden meaning of tears have no reason to run, we'll know when the most beautiful words in the human language can stand untranslated. We'll feel the sheen of sweat and our delirious hearts breaking down borders and bridging a way through, we'll redesign the aisles made to divide us. We'll move as flesh moves with bone. We'll speak as teeth speak with tongue. And we won't withhold our neighbor from the pain it takes to grow. But nor will we withhold hope. We will know it because we'll feel it. And it will feel like a warm mandorla of gold made from the parts we were once so sure were too broken, too broken to be made whole. Thank you. <laughs> we're here we're here you're here i'm here September. thanks to you <laughs> september 28th is here and the book the baby the wake up is here the baby has arrived <laughs> it's an arduous journey for yeah. sure <gasps> thank you how does it feel to to see the the cover the book cart, the book itself, your name, your full name? Oh. Um, okay. Come on, sis. We just started. <laughs> um, thank you. I am first and foremost so grateful to be here. Um, I have so many people I want to thank. But you know, this type of journey is just so um, long, right? It's not just the writing process. It's not just the publishing. It's the life that we've lived. And the entire life of never understanding the potential because no one ever taught you. And I realized when I was running my own business or when I was writing this book that I 
No one taught me to dream big. Mm-hmm. And even in this process, right, surviving the very white world and a very white dominant industry and wanting people to believe in your potential the way that my grandpa saw in me. So that's what's coming up for me. And, um, God damn it. <laughs> May um, some tissues, please? Yeah, this is not going to cut it. <laughs> if any, anyone hears us, uh, some tissues, please. Um, and I think for me, the just seeing the faces, this is my first in-person speaking engagement. Yes. And thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. And I know folks are dialed in. And thank you so much for coordinating all of this and making this happen. But truly, in this world and navigating these systems, I am here because of my people. And because of the community that's backing me up every step of the way when the system tells me I am not enough. Mm-hmm. That I don't have a seat. But you got me the seat. Well, you know, I think we made the seats ourselves. <laughs> and I think that's the reminder. I mean, every single face of people here, every, every, so there's so many different types of people in this room. And I see people who I met in college when we were organizing. I see Billy Curtis and Cece Ambrosio from Gender Equity Resource Center at Berkeley. That was my home when I needed community, when I needed growth. And they've been part of my journey all, this, all these years. And I see people who I've built a company with, our facilitators and change makers, and people who are doing incredible work inside very toxic systems who are having my back. (laughs) And there are also people who are just trying to survive every single day. So when I say that I did this for us and that I do this because of this, I don't say that lightly or for, you know, for show. Because I can't, I wouldn't be here without every single one of these people in this room. God, I'm so emotional. <laughs> um, and my name. So my mom's here, by the way. Yeah. Um, and my name, my Korean name, Mijung, I just reclaimed it this year. And I wanted to do it when um, this book was going to come out. I, I could not live with my book being published under just Michelle Kim, even though that's the name that most of you know me as, and most of my life in the U.S. has been lived through that name. But the name I got from my grandpa, and I was raised by my grandparents in South Korea. Um, My parents were divorced at a very young age. My mom was working, and I spent most of my childhood living with my grandparents in Seoul. And uh, my grandpa was a philosopher, he was a professor, he was an educator, and he was also an activist. He, he was a very stubborn man. Thank you. Of course. My sister got me. Michelle Mush, Mush got us the tissue. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. You see how this happens, yeah. though? You see this play out? My people got me. Yeah. Um, and he, I remember growing up seeing my grandpa read every day, and he wrote every day. Um, And I saw growing up seeing stacks of paper that he hand wrote and he bound these, you know, thousands of pages of paper um, with like threads. And that was his manuscript. He had his whole manuscript ready to go. There was a book title and everything, but it never got published before he died. Mm. So for me, and I dedicated this book to my grandpa, Um, it really feels like I am honoring not just my life, but the life of my ancestors and continuing the legacy the best way I know how. Uh, so that's, that's the significance of this book for me in this moment. Um, and I, I, 
this was such a work of so many people and community. And I, I also have to thank Renee, my editor, Renee Setliar. <laughs> she opened the door for me to be able to do this. Um, and we need people in positions of power to be able to be intentionally opening doors. Um, because right now there aren't enough seats taken up by marginalized people. And that's the reality, right? So, Renee, thank you. And thank you for giving me the freedom to say whatever the F I wanted <laughs> in the book. Um, so, yeah. Hi. <laughs> it's so good to see you all. Thank you for being here. And um, thank you again for creating the seat for me. We created the seat together. I keep, I keep saying that, but I, I guess it's really hard for us to imagine that. You, you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, if there's folks in here. This is... This is your tribe. This is our tribe. This is our, our community who are working tireless, tirelessly. The R's are really hard for me. Me too. You can thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody understands that. Um, in, the, in the toxic systems, and, you know, what does that mean? I know that that, that question is it's kind of basic. You should know, you know what this means. But the, the first question I was going to ask you was about you know, your journey, getting into this type of work, like who dreams of saying, Hey, I'm going to go change some stuff, especially in corporations. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I feel like we're all doing different versions of change work by existing in this world. And uh, I really got into the work of consciously trying to create change inside systems, um, when I was in high school. Um, so I immigrated to this country when I was 13 and that was a whole experience of learning English, trying to assimilate. And, um, I also realized that I am queer. I had my first crush on a woman when I was 18, 16 in the teens. And I was heartbroken. Um, and that's how I got into the world of organizing um, and I was so embraced by the queer and trans community who saw me as someone who needed a home, who needed um, to understand what it meant to exist as a queer person in this world and as a queer Asian person in this world. And I was a very good troublemaker in high school, I was very, um, uh, I was a frequent guest to the principal's office uh, for doing demonstrations and organizing protests and all the things. I, I grew up in San Diego, um, a very conservative part of San Diego. Uh, so we were getting calls from parents like, what, what, is, what is going on on the quad today? Um, and I went to Berkeley. <laughs> Woo, go Bears! <laughs> Um, and you know, even that I think for me was a, was a possibility coming into fruition, right? Even going to college. I remember growing up with my dad who was undocumented in this country for over 10 years and I grew up low income and that my dad would put on my desk a pamphlet for joining the army, um, ROTC, because he thought that that was the only way I could go to college because otherwise we weren't going to be able to afford it, right? So the fact that I am here with that history um, is something that I think about often. And, and that's also the work, right? That's, that's the work of fighting the odds to squeeze yourself into the places that weren't meant for you. Um, and I was a really active organizer, Billy can tell me, tell you all about my uh, work on campus of causing good trouble. Um, and I for sure thought that I was going to be um, a full-time organizer or doing work in the nonprofit sector. And then I realized that I needed money <laughs> uh, to bring my mom over here from South Korea. She was still living in Korea and I um, wanted to bring her here and she wanted to be here with me and my sister and money was a real problem. And the immigration process is incredibly uh, difficult and expensive to navigate. So 
the advice that I got from my mentors and friends who had gone into the field of organizing and nonprofits, like, hey, you might not be able to do the things that you need to do with your family if you come on this side. And by the way, this side is not all that great either. <laughs> There's a lot of work to be done everywhere, right? Um, so then I went into the corporate, corporate world, corporate America. I went into management consulting of all fields. Um, I thought traveling was cool, uh, and I didn't get to travel a lot. Um, so I, I thought that was a great opportunity for me to be able to experience the world, um, and learn how businesses work and how systems that I denounce so often actually operate from the inside. That's how I justified it. Uh, and uh, I went into the corporate space and uh, I was so excited to join the LGBT employee resource group. I thought that was going to be another version of organizing. Um, and I felt so disillusioned by the way corporate America was talking about diversity and inclusion. Um, and I thought that there was something really missing in the way that folks were talking about diversity and inclusion um, and in the ways that people were talking about it as if it's a, it's a business discipline and not a social justice work that we're doing. And it was so devoid of historical context or the social context. And none of the things that I wanted to talk about, how, hey, our people are actually dying. So I am not going to go to your happy hour during Pride Month, um, unless we're talking about that, right? And I remember feeling really alone and really lonely in that process of trying to talk about DNI in the way that I felt was principled and connected back to my roots and back to the organizing world and feeling ostracized inside a system that didn't see um, that being pertinent to the business case for diversity, right? That we hear. Um, Business is, diversity is good for the bottom line. Diversity is good for innovation. And I remember feeling um, like this is sick, the way that we're talking about it, because really what we're needing to talk about is human lives. And I thought, uh, okay, I can't do this. Um, so I quit consulting after a year. And I, um, I had to break the contract and pay back the signing bonus. It was a whole ordeal. And I ended up joining um, a tech company. <laughs> Good idea. I thought that was going to be so much better. <laughs> they said that it was going to be more um, progressive and uh, fast, fast, rapid growth and uh, opportunities. Uh, so I went thinking that it was going to be more um, of those things. And then I was met with the similar types of issues around the way that people were talking about diversity. Just in this case, people were wearing sweats and T-shirts doing so. Um, and I, I spent five or six years in tech startups, and I ended up exiting because of a really awful incident that happened to my friend that's in the book. I'm not going to go into it because it's, um, it's in the book. Um, and I quit without a plan. And I quit in solidarity with my friend um, who had experienced extreme trauma and harm. Um, and we didn't know what to do next. But we knew that we didn't want to go back into the system that hurt us so badly. So we decided to start Awaken. And that's the company that we started with. I believe we, we put uh, $1,000 each <laughs> to invest. And we grew it. And... Um, it's it, that's through that work. I wanted to restore what it means for us to do this work of diversity and inclusion, but with the real why and the principles behind it being about social justice. This is not about increasing the bottom line for companies. This is actually about correcting centuries of oppression and harm that's been caused. And that's the work that we're trying to do. Mm. Um, I was just going to say, I'm just so in awe, you know, made your own seat, wrote your own book, built your own business. No, we did this. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but you did too. I mean, we and you, <laughs> um, you sent us some photos that we're going to play for the audience. And so let's go through some of these photos and 
was such a cute baby. I know. <laughs> Is this you and grandfather? That's my grandpa. Mm-hmm. That's my grandpa. Um, my sister still has his glasses. I know. I was a cuter baby, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, that's my grandfather. This is me talking about um, the Me Too movement. And I remember they put me on this panel with three men. (laughs) And I had to um, have some conversations to make sure that that wasn't the case. But um, yeah, engaging in tough conversations with people who are wanting to see change happen. That's what I did a lot of before everything shut down. That's me causing good trouble. Yep. It's always good trouble when queer people show up. Hell yes. That was, uh, I feel like that was my big first speaking engagement, like my big break into this work. Um, and I remember being so grateful. It was actually another um, Asian person who gave me the seat to be able to do that. We take care of each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not eating anything. <laughs> do you remember? I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm giving a talk about, um, I, I think in the, Tech, a tech ecosystem, we're talking about how algorithmic bias um, impacts a lot of different marginalized groups in a negative way. This is me. <laughs> this is me giving a um, commencement speech at a lavender graduation. So every year there is a separate graduation ceremony for queer and trans um, students on campus at Berkeley. Um, and for a variety of reasons, not only to celebrate, but some folks don't have um, the opportunity to really celebrate with their chosen family um, or also be honored by their own, like their, you know, biological family because of many reasons why, um, you know, many reasons rooted in homophobia and transphobia and such. So this is such a sacred space that we carve out for our people every year to honor and celebrate this milestone. And I had the incredible honor of speaking um, to the graduates that year. I can't remember which year it was. Do you remember, Billy? Okay. One, one year. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing the photos. You're welcome. <laughs> so what are we waking up to? Uh, I feel like we're always waking up to different realities that we haven't been living in for a long time. And I think that's what happened in the summer of 2020 for a lot of folks. And I think we're always waking up to different, you know, communities being impacted, different situations, different issues. So I think that wake up is ongoing. And so that's part of what I talked about in the book um, is our waking up to the external world and the stories that we haven't, heard or we haven't known, we haven't lived, and waking up to other people's suffering and needs um, and stories. But I think the part that I wanted to really underscore with this book is our waking up to ourselves and our own complicity in the systems that we're part of, our complicity in the issues that we're talking about and denouncing so often and so easily, and also our waking up to our capacity to transform ourselves in order to transform the world. Grace Lee Boggs is somebody that I quote in the intro of my book, and she talks about that, and that being such a um, grounding principle for me, that in order for us to transform the world, we need to take the work of transforming ourselves seriously. So for me, it's not just waking up to other people's problems, right? But it's waking up to our own relationship to those issues and also understanding that none of us is neutral or innocent in the things that we are, um, in the battle that we're fighting and the systems that we are a part of. 
and also that we have the capacity and the opportunity to do something about it and to change. It's so nice having um, it's so nice having a poet in the audience because they know how to give the reaction. <laughs> She's probably drafting another poem as we speak. You know, yes, probably an end Can't poem stop. coming. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have so many good questions, and I'm fielding questions from the audience, my own questions, and then I'm sure you're thinking of your questions. We're going to open that up in just about five minutes, and. Uh, I mean, one of the questions that I love that's here, you know, it says, have you been able to work with people who don't care or seem to care? Um, <laughs> but, but I kind of want to go a little bit more in depth. There's a chapter in the book that addresses white supremacy. And I feel like, especially after the last administration, we've just fallen off the wagon in terms of having these impactful conversations around white supremacy and Lots of people have conflated it with, you know, being white or, you know, uh, a white person or whiteness. And that's not exactly what we're talking about, are we? It's not. And it is at the same time. Um, but that conflation, I think, is something that is important for us to unpack and explore. Because I think the immediate reaction people get when I talk about white supremacy and utter the words white supremacy, especially inside systems that have not been um, giving room for that kind of conversation is people automatically assume that I'm talking about the KKK or the Nazis and people in white hoods, right? People who are outwardly and proudly um, engaging in racist rhetoric and um, spewing hate and violence um, onto marginalized people. And I, I challenge that notion by, one, defining white supremacy in the most basic sense the fact that, you know, the dictionary defines white supremacy as one, um, the false belief that whiteness is superior to other races and two, and therefore that white people should have dominance over people of color. And though it can seem really simple and extreme at a glance, I think there are so many minute details of our systems and lives that perpetuate those um, definitions, right? How we put whiteness as superior to other, any other races, whether it is prioritizing white sounding names over ethnic sounding names when we're doing resume screens, or there are so many data, so much data, um, so many data points that back up this, um, uh, the, the investment in white supremacy culture, right? And I think the, also the false belief is that white supremacy is enacted only by white people. I'm part of it too. If white supremacy is the air that we breathe, if it's the water that we're all drinking, then we have to unlearn it. Every, every one of us needs to unlearn it and excavate it from within us. And I see how everybody wants to distance themselves from white supremacy culture and being part of white supremacy systems. But I think that's the first step that we actually need to um, take is reckoning with the fact that actually we all have white supremacist beliefs ingrained in us because we've been exposed to it our entire lives. And I'm very sort of um, honest about how I have perpetuated white supremacy culture and beliefs in my own life, in my own life, whether that is me believing that using my Korean name wasn't going to get me that far. So adopting and assimilating to the white ideals and trying to fit in, trying to lose my accent, trying to lose my part of the culture that was so sacred to me in order for me to get ahead, but also to survive. And there's complexity in that. Um, and so I think there's a, it's a lot more nuanced than how most people are talking about it. And I think that's the, the reason why I wrote this book is because I want us to stay in the complexity. I want us to stay in the contradictions and the nuance because without facing it, we can't actually move forward together or achieve alignment of any sort because we continue to fall into the trap of reductiveness and surface level BS that's not getting us anywhere. And part of, I think, um, what you're talking about uh, people who don't care, people who, you know, working with people who don't care. Um, I actually don't think that I work with people who don't care very often because I think there are enough of people who care who need to get it more. 
right? Um, so if, if people are saying, I don't care at all, so I don't want to do this work, then I actually think that it's a waste of our energy trying to convince them. I don't want to spend my time trying to convince people who do not want to change. However, thank you, Billy. <laughs> However, <laughs> if people say that they care and they say that they are committed to equity and justice, then I think there's an opportunity for us to hold up the mirror and have them see whether they are in alignment with themselves and with their values and with their proclaimed identities. And that's the work that I want to do. Um, and I think that, you know, the way that we also talk about this work, why do you care or white supremacy culture um, sometimes can be so simple, simplified and reductive in that, you know, a lot of people think that the, doing this work, uh, you know, people of all races think that doing this work is for marginalized people and for other people, right? Like I'm trying to help marginalized people. I'm trying to be of support, right? Whether that is Asian people going to BLM marches or straight people coming to pride marches and supporting queer people um, or white people showing up to, you know, all of the above. And I think I want more people to see themselves in the problem. That it's not actually, you're not solving white supremacy as a white person because you want to help your people of color friends. White supremacy is destroying you too. That white supremacy is robbing white people of their humanity as well. And, <laughs> and that, right, this is in similar veins, homophobia is destroying straight people's lives as well right? Because the gender binary is not serving anyone. Transphobia is not serving anybody. The patriarchy is ruining men's lives too. So how can we get people to see that this is actually for them as much as it is for me, that this is actually about our collective humanity and our collective survival and restoring the humanness that we continue to forget in the system so that's the work that I think we all have to do is how do I see myself in this work? Not as, an third, not as a third party or do-gooder who is trying to save other people's lives, but because it's destroying me too right now. And I think that's the complexity that we forget when we talk about this work as if this is a, you know, a programming issue, right? As if this is a diversity programming, diversity workshop that we can put on and solve in a day. And I think that there's an opportunity for us to complicate the narrative from now till forever. Well, I think I did my job, so pick up a book, pick up a copy of The Wake Up on your way out or online. Um, well, let's go to audience questions, because actually it is time. And so I'll start with our online audience. Here's a question. India is another country that has a very diverse population. Do they handle diversity better than the United States? Is there something we can learn from what they do? Oh, we're going global. Um, <laughs> You know, it's funny because people ask me this kind of question in terms of like, is anyone doing better at this time? Somebody, you know, the, the, a very frequently asked question is, you know, show me a company that's doing it better than anybody else so that we can model after them. Um, and the, the answer is no one is doing it better than anyone else. Because even when a company or an organization is touted as being the most inclusive, the most equitable the experience of marginalized employees inside that could differ based on the team that they're a part of, based on the new manager that's hired. So how can we judge an entire company's ability to serve marginalized people um, at the brand level, right? So similarly, um, I think comparing, like looking at a nation at large as a whole depending on who we're talking about in terms of the marginalized community within that community and that within that country, I think the answer will differ. I've worked with companies in, um, in India and also companies with lo mostly located in the U.S. with other offices in other countries. And uh, we've worked with companies with um, a pretty sizable Asia um, 
Pacific presence. And the issues differ per country in terms of whether it's gender issues. And when gender comes up, it's still in most countries, it's um, in, in Asia particularly, is mostly about the binary, right? About um, solving for the marginalization of women and cisgender women. And I think there's still a lot of catching up to do in different parts of the world. And I think that sometimes the mistake that people make is um, trying to fit the same narrative and solutions that we have in the U.S. into other parts of the country. And I've seen that happen time after time because people believe that's, you know, the standardization and, and efficiency-driven uh, culture kind of pushes us to do that. But it's, um, it's arrogant when people do that. It's, um, and it's ineffective. So I would say if you're a practitioner thinking about this issue globally, um, to really listen to the local voices and to focus on the locally marginalized communities and have them lead um, rather than having a U.S.-based consultant who um, are taking yet again another very imperialist um, approach to this work. By the way, our, for our in-person crowd, if you have a question for Michelle, we've moved the mic up here. Um, so we will welcome your question. Hi, everybody. Hi. I'm Michelle and Catherine. Haven't seen you in a while. Air hug. Hi, Catherine. So, hi, everybody. <laughs> hi, Billy. I miss you. Um, Catherine's also running a book club with my book. I am. <laughs> Thank you for that. And she's making a guest appearance. Okay, and anyway. Um, so I hear that you're going to, this book was actually, people were telling you or mentors were telling you, like, this is going to be like an opportunity. You're going to get more work and all these things are happening. Thank you. That's fantastic. And then I also heard that this is actually the point where you're looking to heal and recover. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, so this is a really, yeah. really important question. Okay. To a friend. Are you ready? Yeah, I don't know. You cannot <laughs> dodge it. You, I'm not going to let you dodge it. Okay. Well, we are not going to let you dodge it. Accountability. Um, how can we as a community be there for you during this healing time? And I mean that. I'm going to pause on that question. I'm going to repeat it. Let's go. <laughs> you all ready with me? I have seen too many of us burn out. Watch us get what, gaslit. And then quit, get underpaid, go to therapy, and be martyred as the fucking problem. I am one of those people, and you help me keep going. So I will not rest until I really know an answer. Otherwise, I'm just going to show up giving you shit. <laughs> Do you see the kind of friends I have? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm a mom. I do that to my kids. When Thank I try to you. Dodge something. You cannot dodge it, so I really want to know. And if you need to think about it, that's fine. I'll be on your LinkedIn feed waiting for the answer. <laughs> so, so far, we have a date with cafecito and a, a treat, and Thank that's you. next. But Thanks. as a community, what can we give to you to heal, sustain, to recover, to keep going? Ugh. Thank you. That's my question. Thank you. I feel like that was, was that a question or was that a demand? <laughs> um, okay, so I have thoughts on this. So first of all, thank you for that question, Catherine. Um, and uh, just reminding people of also the, the real cost of doing this work um, and, and trying to live the life that is in alignment with our values um, while also facing so much harm on a day-to-day -day basis. So yes, like Catherine said, when I told people that I'm writing a book, a lot of people came to me and talked about, oh, this is such an exciting new phase for your life. You are going to have a bigger platform. You're going to get more visibility. You're going to be able to get more consulting clients, more speaking engagements. And people were giving me unsolicited advice about how to monetize, right? And like, oh, you can make an e-course. You, you can do this and licensing, da, 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 da. Um, and to me, as much as that sounds exciting to me, this book feels more like an epilogue and here's why, um, I am in the midst of sunsetting my business that I've poured so much into, and uh, I have not really 
announced it until this week that that's what's happening. Um, and there are so many reasons of why I decided to do that, partly because of burnout um, and being really uh, not wanting to, at this point in my life, continue to do this work from a place of trauma and hurt and exhaustion. And also understanding that existing inside the capitalist system, building a company, um, there are certain things that are just designed in the way that makes it really difficult for you to stay in alignment with your values all the time. Um, and as a business owner, those are the daily choices and struggles that I was met with that was also adding to the exhaustion of trying to balance everything while trying to survive, while trying to do right by the folks that were um, choosing to stay with me for the vision um, and also trying to serve the clients that were demanding more and more and more and the, the scalability and the, the, the efficiency and needing to needing to grow in order to keep doing it, right? And to provide all the things that I wanted to provide to um, the people that I was working with. And I just saw the wheel that we were building, that I was building as a part of the system. And I just felt like it's time for me to divest. Um, so this, for me, feels like a period of closing this chapter and resting and really giving myself an opportunity to explore. Um, and it's a terrifying place. I'm a Virgo. <laughs> so not having a plan for what's next is really, really terrifying. Um, and I also realize that I have a lot of healing to do. That I have not, I, this was another year. I, I end up in the ER every two, three years. Um, it's a thing that my friend Marissa knows and Kenny knows very uh, intimately and it happened again this year. And so that was another sign where my body was telling me that this is not, this is not working. Something is not working and you need to stop and you need to start paying attention to yourself. But I think on the topic of healing and trauma, I'm a huge believer in therapy and I go every single week and I'm so privileged to be able to access it because I know it's not something that is accessible to a lot of people, right? Even finding people who take your insurance or people who are um, even consciously being intentional about the identities that you hold, who can have the, um, the awareness of the systemic impact on human bodies and, and, and um, the mental health, it's really hard to find socially conscious therapists. So there are so many reasons why therapy is so difficult to access. And I also feel like until the types of violence that's causing trauma actually stop, we're always going to be playing catch up, trying to heal. And so I think there is healing that we can do, the healing work that we can do at the individual level, at the interpersonal level. And I do think that in order for us to heal for the long term, for all of us, the violence that is actually at the root of all this trauma needs to be reckoned with. And that's the, and I know this is not, I don't, I don't have a plan for healing for me besides going to therapy and, and resting a little bit. Um, but I'll work on it. I'll get back to you, Catherine. Um, but that's, I wanted to address that sort of systemic trauma that is also so prevalent and present in this conversation around healing. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes. Awesome. I'm Allison. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Allison. Um, yeah. So I guess I'll just get into it. So other than purchasing a copy of The Wake Up and reading it immediately, what advice would you give to people who are looking to self-educate? Um, being that a lot of people are kind of confronted constantly by chatter on social media. I think there's a lot of merit to it. There's also a lot of reductiveness, toxicity, and just sort of sensationalism, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, but it is really accessible for a lot of people. So I think for the people who are kind of at the start of their journey, um, what advice would you want to give to those people? Yes, thank you for that question. And I think there is so much um, desire for people to want to get involved and to actually go beyond performative allyship um, and beyond the black squares on social media. Um, 
And I, I get that question a lot of how do we get started? So be, beyond reading my book, right? Uh, um, I'm a huge proponent of starting within your own sphere of influence and also focusing on an issue, one issue, and going deep. Because when we focus on one issue and go deep, what I realized doing this work is it eventually leads to all other issues. Because the systems that are shared um, are, the systems are shared. The systems of oppression are interconnected, intertwined, and they're shared. So when you go down one issue deeply enough, then you will find that they connect to a lot of different issues. So pick one issue, go deep, and look at local organizations that you can be a part of. For me, a lot of the things that I learned, I learned through being part of community organizing groups. Um, not through, um, you know, corporate diversity trainings. Uh, I mean, Awakens workshops were great. (laughs) But even that, I think, sometimes falls short of really connecting to the issues that are happening on the ground. And especially, I mean, we're in the Bay Area. Bay Area is such an incredible site for organizing and activism and innovative um, liberation movements and tactics. So I would, that's usually my advice is to get involved locally. Social media is great for uh, making connection with people who you may not have connected with otherwise and being able to understand what is going on um, very quickly and being inundated. But that's also sometimes incredibly overwhelming, even for me. Um, so I think being rooted and having a political home it, for people who are serious about doing this work, uh, even just starting off with volunteer opportunities would be an incredible way to get started. And if that's too, even too, um, daunting of a task, then I think just pull a few different people together and start having conversations about opportunities to be able to get involved, um, as a collective, I find that it's really difficult to do this work alone Mm. Um, and no change that I've been able to create or projects that I've been a part of was done by myself. And I think having a political home or whether it's just two, three uh, groups of people, friends that you connect with on a regular basis, having that support system is so needed and yet it's so rare especially right now. So I would just grab people that you are aligned with in terms of your values and starting small and letting that influence grow as you um, become more confident in your ability to create change and influence. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Michelle. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, My name is Gina Miranda, and I was exposed to your work a couple years ago when you presented to us in corporate environment at uh, at Vibe Week. And and it's just been been eye-opening following you the past couple of years and people that you follow and all that has been fantastic. So my question has to do with your confidence. Because I see that coming out a, a lot in your book. Uh, I'm just, just, um, just from the beginnings, you know, the um, feeling grounded. And so I wanted to ask you about that. But you're talking about trauma and <laughs> therapy and all of that. But I feel the groundedness from you. And, and I feel the groundedness in me, but not enough. <laughs> so um, I, I'm wanting to hear a little bit more about your confidence, your groundedness, um, how you keep that going on a day-to-day basis. I've, I've been doing this work since I was a child, and I, st- and I can't, I, I know when it's, I'm, I've got the soul in something, but then I let it go and go do something else. So how do you stay, I see your confidence, and I'd like to know more about it. Well, thank you for that question, and you seem very confident to me and very <laughs> grounded to me. Um, my partner is probably laughing in the seat <laughs> because I am the biggest self-critic and also the um, types of insecurities that overwhelm me <laughs> and uh, the anxiety that I struggle with um, is not even close to being the kind of you know person that you're just you know speaking to me, reflecting back how I present 
myself to you is not how at all I feel inside every day. Um, and I, I don't want to fake it till I make it. You know, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about the fact that I am actually not at all self-assured and I have a lot of fears. Um, very rarely do I feel like I got this and I'm the best person for this. And even in writing this book, the doubts that crept up in terms of, should I be writing this book? Should I be taking up space? Who am I to be writing this book? And I, um, and I started thinking about that question of, you know, who am I to deserve this to, can I just exist? Is there room for my stories without overtaking anybody else's? And I think just being allowed to exist because I am worthy of existing. I think that has been the grounding truth for me. And it's not something that I um, don't struggle with every single day in terms of the confidence that you're talking about. But I have people reminding me every single day that, I mean, literally I was on the phone with uh, my friend Marissa, who um, is here, who said, with or without this book, I am here. That I am loved without me having to do anything. That I don't actually have to earn my worth as a human being, but I get to just exist and accept people's love and respect and the dignity that I deserve in this world. And I think that's also at the root of this work that we're all trying to do, right? It's recognizing and protecting that truth that every single person in here and out there deserves the kind of respect and dignity and joy and a platform to be recognized. Um, so I don't, I don't, th- I don't know how to answer that question because I'm actually not confident no, I, I <laughs> at think, all. I think I'm um, hearing you say that when you focus on others, then you don't have to kind of worry about your own confidence. And, and I know that that's been true in my life too. When I've done ERG work and I've, I've done that kind of stuff, but that's when I grow, you know, tenfold. So I, I think that's what I'm hearing you say too, and just use that and, and keep doing that. I think you're worthy of speaking even when you're not confident. I think we are worthy of existing and speaking our truth and trying to speak our truth and trying to take up space even when we are trembling. And I think more than trying to teach people how to have confidence, I want people to learn how to take up space when they're not and creating room for that. So speak your truth also. Speak your truth also. Thank you. Thanks. We have uh, time for one more question, and then I want to give everyone an opportunity for book signing and to get your books. Um, so last qu- question. <laughs> <laughs> I am beyond proud of you. I'm Billy Curtis. And it's really, thank you for that leading. For that question, because I'm going to take it from the other side, from something we talked about just a week ago. Do not stop crying. <laughs> and I'm going to take it from the poem all the way through with Michelle. Meow's been asking you. Because each time you kept saying, thank you for making this seat for me, Michelle reminded you about what you've done. So I'm taking it right back to what just came, right back to the poem that who's in this room. And for all of us to think, how do we, Michelle, your thoughts on this? The others can chime in. How do we, who want to be part of collective, who want to be partnering, who want to collaborate and be in this so we hear all voices work within a system that only rewards the eye and tells us that it's not okay for us to um, be in collective but to get into this toxic behavior that makes it really difficult at, in one, it's almost, what's that, what, schizophrenic, so to speak, um, of like, I, am, I know I'm supposed to create a collective, yet at the same time, I shouldn't own 
my worth and I shouldn't own my power or what I've done and what I'm doing for others. And so I want to go back to that space of elaborate a little bit more, not just from your perspective for you, but what I know you know what to say to all of us about how challenging it is for us to get over our imposter syndrome. Mm. Oh, the imposter syndrome. Um, I, I feel like we also need to thank you for that question. Um, the, I feel like there are so many different questions that you just asked in that question. (laughs) Um, But I'll take the last one first. So on the imposter syndrome, I think we always, when we see the symptoms, we have to go back to asking questions about the underlying conditions that are birthing that symptom. So why do we have imposter syndrome, especially for women of color, especially for people of marginalized genders and marginalized races, um, the prevalence of imposter syndrome in a white dominant society, in a men dominant society. I think that is, that is the link that we need to constantly make. Um, that it's not, we are born without confidence or we are born with imposter syndrome somehow, how we don't, we, we, you know, make ourselves believe that we don't belong when there are no cues saying otherwise. Um, It's because we are being told that we don't belong. That's why we believe it. And that's why we need to unlearn it. And I think we need to change the conditions that are birthing these symptoms in order for us to correct it rather than just focusing on the individual healing and coaching, right? Because what I see so often in corporate America is people come and coach women on how to be more confident, teach people in positions of power to stop doubting women. (laughs) Let's build the culture and systems where we don't have to teach marginalized people how to survive the toxicity. Let's fix the toxicity. (laughs) Which kind of goes to the the other conversation around the collective and I think the, 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 why the system is so toxic is not only because there are, you know, white men in positions of power who don't want to change. It's also because we have people who look like you and me enacting the same violence in different seats of power. That's why when we talk about representation and representation alone, it's so limiting for us to achieve the kind of future that we want because even with different faces, the same patterns of violence continue. So I think there's just so much work to be done at every level, right? Whether it is intrapersonal, interpersonal, organizational, or systemic, but everything has to be aligned to the same values and principles in order for us to create change across all front lines. And I hope that the principles and lessons that I've shared in this book could help us move together. Mm. Thank, you. Thank you so much, can Michelle, read, Nija, and Kim. Can I, um, sorry, sorry, don't, before, can I actually close out with a little passage? Okay, close out. Well. And then we want to get you out there uh, and signing books. Okay, 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 okay. All right. Um, I wrote this. This is chapter 15, the last chapter. It's called Find Joy in Community. And uh, I talk about when I was deep, deep, deep in my depression. um, And I needed my community to help me survive. Though it was my battle... My people caught me in their net as I was falling deeper into a hole and showed me that though I was dark, I was not alone. That I could stretch out my arms to find that they were all surrounding me, ready to hold my hand while I found my ground again. What my loving, endlessly kind community taught me was that I did not have to do anything to be worthy of love, care, respect, dignity, and life. Nor did I have to earn my worth by giving something back in exchange. I was worthy for simply being. I am worthy for simply being. And everyone else is too. 
We live in a world that is filled with messages that question our inherent worth as human beings and systems that tell us we are undeserving. We are told we need to contribute to society to garner respect. We need to have money to be allowed wellness. We need to look, sound, and appeal to the ideals of whiteness to belong. We need to have credentialed paperwork to legitimize our existence, whether to be deemed legal on stolen land or to certify our intelligence. We need to have bodies that match the medical picture book definition of normal, able-bodied, cisgender, neurotypical, etc., or risk being ostracized, pathologized, criminalized, and precluded from accessing safety and resources. We need to labor endlessly to earn ourselves and our loved ones shelter, food, and a future that is maybe, hopefully, slightly easier than our current reality. But to live is our birthright. To live with our most basic human needs met without having to suffer violence and exploitation should not feel like an outrageous demand. So every day, I return to what is innate wisdom in all of us, yet so easily forgotten, that each of us is worthy of living our lives fully and with unabashed joy, dignity, safety, and freedom, not because we've earned it, but because we exist. In fierce protection of this truth, I commit to resisting and dismantling oppressive forces that say otherwise. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle Mijung Kim. Pick up, a, pick up a copy of The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. Thank you to our online audience for being with us this evening. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California for the platform and Acquire for sponsoring this evening's program. Thank you, everyone.